0: Wow. Wow. Live from. New York. To New York. This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. for the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle. Follow me! Follow me with He's put it. Here's your host, Mike, Mike Phillips. Mike What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. You are your New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you this week. We already did one episode of the the Masters, talk about the Snyder Cut. This week, we're going to wrap up our covers of the NCAA Tournament with Troy Moriello, the host of the Seeing Red Podcast. We're gonna recap the national championship game. Baylor's big win over Gonzaga and win their first national championship. Talk about that. Talk about the latest in the coaching carousel. Some headlines to watch for the offseason. All that coming up on the podcast in just a bit. We're also, jump by our legal analyst, Phil Freyetta, to... Break down some of the sports legal issues of late, including we had the case in the NCAA up at the Supreme Court last week. We heard oral arguments on that case. Break down what we learned from that. Plus, the fallout of MLB moving the All-Star game from Atlanta over to Colorado. talk about that with Phil in just a bit, but we'll get started with this week's extra opening tip. We're going to take a look at my big takeaways in the opening series for the Mets right after this. Ready for this? The opening tip. And then here we go. All right, opening tip here talking about the Mets on their first series of the season. They lose two out of three in Philadelphia against the Phillies. And Frankly, they should have won this series. I mean, Jacob DeGrom had another win stolen from him because he goes out there for six shutout innings, bullpen collapses, Mets leave an army runners on base. They lose 5-2, to two, and on we go with that. back nice to get the win on Tuesday. Lose again on Wednesday. David Peterson has trouble the first inning. Mets again leave an army runners on base. And you know what? Overall, it's not a big deal because, again, this is just 3 of 162. But plenty of opportunities to win games. They're not entirely healthy. There are a couple, two big concerns out of the series, obviously. Number one is, again, the lack of clutch hitting, which, again, I think that's not a big deal. You can drive more to early season randomness. I know they didn't hit all last season, but that's the kind of thing that evens out. This team has too many talented hitters to expect they're all going to stink with runners in scoring position going on. The thing you have to watch here, with a raised eyebrow. It's the bullpen. Because the bullpen has not been good. And I mean Edwin D hasn't had a pitch yet. Because they not had a safe situation for him. But the other guys have looked pretty bad. Trevor Mays had two rough outings. He was the big free agent signing to improve the group. Aaron Loop in his first appearance. Got bad job here out of. On opening day basically. He hit, comes in to face Bryce Harper. Hits him and gives up three runs. You go. Castro had a rough second game in the first one. You know, he had a perfect He had one hit to the fence. Dell and we want to see if he can throw hard enough. We don't know if he'll do that yet. Jacob Barnes came in yesterday and looked at Peterson and gave four runs when the Mets were trying to make it closer and ended up putting the game out of distance. This bullpen will get better when Seth Luo comes in, but there are big issues here. Trevor May, I think, based on his tracker, he'll be fine, but this team doesn't have a proven lefty back there sort of one less F-you from Jeff Wilpon to the regime when he would not let them make the claim for Brad Hand, even though Sandy said, hey, if we were around, he would have done it. Having Brad Hand in this bullpen right now make a big difference. You don't know if you can trust Robert Gisnellman yet. You don't know about what Jacob Barnes is going to be for you because, again, he's just got his grab-off waivers. They're going to need to trade for a bullpen arm, at least one. And we know Sandy's willing to do it in the past. He good. He's made good bullpen trades. Remember, 2015, he traded for... Tyler Clippard, as in Reed, they made a huge difference to the Mets down the stretch. There will be bullpen trades this year. Seth Lutow coming back will be one big arm. You're going to need lead at least one more for this bullpen. Interesting to see also with them, they got this opening series against the Marlins this, at Citi Field, and the Phillies are back in for four. You know, it'll be interesting to see how this rotation holds up because... We got what we thought we were going to get out of Jacob DeGrom and Marcus Stroman. We're both very good. Dave Peterson had a rough game yesterday. He had a bad first inning. Hung on to get them through five innings, four runs, but the damage was done, pretty much. You have to see here what Tywan Walker does in his role in the fourth starter. To see what Joe Lucchese does when he's actually a starter. Who knows, maybe they used the with hand with Jacob Barnes, though. Giving Jacob Barnes the opening slot after what he did in Philly seems like a very dicey proposition. I think the bullpen is definitely an area of concern here for the Mets because even though the whole division has bad bullpens, the Mets have learned far too many times a bad bullpen can sink a season. They need to figure this out. Whether it's getting guys in better usage, figuring out better roles, whatever it is, this bullpen cannot be what it's been the first three games over the course of the season. The Mets hope to actually get where they can go, which I I said on this podcast, they can win the World Series. They have a lot of work to do to get there. But the good news is it's still a very long season. They have 159 more of these on the day of recording in the home opener City Field today against the Marlins. I'm not at all worried about this right now. We obviously have to track it as the season goes on. We'll see what happens there. But let's close the, the book on college basketball now with Troy Moriello, recapping the end of Mars Madness right after this. All right, we are back here on the podcast, breaking down the end of March Madness, completing our journey through the NCAA tournament. Once again, the host of the Seeing Red podcast, Troy Morial here. Troy, how are you? I'm doing okay, Mike. How are you doing today? Pretty good. I feel like it's sad that this has to end because this is a fun run through March.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm happy that we got it. You know, I'm happy that we got it with uh, little to no interruptions. So that's good. And uh, yeah, it's sad that it comes to an end, but only a couple more months until next college basketball season starts. So that's good.
0: Yeah, I also want to start off by saying, you know, bravo selection committee, bravo NCAA, like getting through a 68 team at the middle of a pandemic, only one game cancellation. Well done.
1: Yeah, yeah. We gave them a hard time a couple of weeks ago, but uh, they seem to put it all together and, uh, you know, put on a tournament where, yeah, they only, they only missed one game out of the, I think 67, I think that were supposed to be played. So yeah, I mean, it's a pretty good percentage. Obviously you would have hoped for all the games to be played, but at the end of the day of the 68 teams in the tournament, uh, 67 of them had a, a real ending to their season, which is a, a, pre, a very good percentage. Obviously, you would have liked to see every team in your in your you know wildest dreams, but it's kind of the world we live in today.
0: It kind of is. And since we've not got a chance to talk to you between the final four and the national championship game, I had to ask you thoughts on the UCLA Gonzaga classic.
1: Yeah, uh, what a game that was! I mean, definitely one of the best college basketball games that i've seen in in my lifetime uh since i started watching the sport uh that buzzer beater i mean i don't know if it's on you know par with the the christian leitner buzzer beater because that's you know a duke kentucky game uh or the chris jenkins one for the national title for villanova a couple years ago but man that's that's an iconic shot that's going to live you know in history now for, for for you know for as long as we, we have college basketball uh, one of the best shots ever. It was crazy. It looked like when, when Sugg shot, he, he kind of knew it was going in, which was awesome. But uh, kind of, you know, in my opinion, kind of saved the tournament a little bit because this was not in, incredibly in terms of, you know, the actual games was not a, a crazy, interesting tournament. There were a lot of blowouts uh, didn't have a lot of the blue bloods, which kind of took the buzz out of maybe a lot of the games and obviously the national title, which we'll talk to and we'll talk about in a second, wasn't the best game either. So, that game really is going to be kind of the defining, um, you know, memory of this tournament. And it did in a way kind of, I think, save the tournament a little bit. Yeah, it
0: definitely did. I think also this shot, like you said, it's iconic. It's going to be up there. Whenever we play March, man, highlights on buzzer beaters. That's going to be right there at the top of the list. Also a little bit like the Andy Chavez catch for the Mets where like, it's a great moment, but they still didn't win.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That has a lot to, to do with it too. Yeah. Um, You know, I I guess we can get into the national title game a little bit. I think that that maybe had a little bit of an impact on the title game, I would say, just because, you know, you're you're playing basically a 48-hour turnaround, uh, Gonzaga is, you know, after, like we said, hitting one of the most iconic buzzer beaters in the tournament's history and moving on to the title game. And you're facing a team like Baylor, who, like you, is one of the you know better teams that we've seen in the recent history of the sport. I think that really impacted Gonzaga going into the national title game, kind of coming off of what was such an iconic, unexpected shot. There, obviously, they expected to win the game, but not in that matter. Uh, I think that really impacted Gonzaga a little bit going into the the, uh, the national final.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you game tips off, I mean, Baylor obviously had the much easier run. They're up twenty five points at the half of their game. They're kind of coasted to the finish, and they came out of the gate like firing on all cylinders. They were up not up eleven one early. They build the lead up huge. They, it, Gonzaga comes at 10 and a half, but that blitz early in the game when they came out, they were dying for all the loose balls. They were hitting all the threes. like That was just such a big like, gut punch to Gonzaga, especially coming off such a dramatic, like energy-exhausting game. I mean, That was such a huge credit to Baylor to come out there and know, hey, we got to take it to him right from the opening tip.
1: Yeah, and and Baylor did exactly what they they needed to do there. Like you mentioned, Baylor played you know basically a snooze fest in the uh, in the first Final Four game. Gonzaga played in an overtime classic that they went down to the wire and won on a buzzer beater. Baylor came out more energized. Baylor came out ready to play, and and like you said, punched Gonzaga right in the gut. The difference for Gonzaga is, and I, I don't you know want to come off like I'm you know saying they weren't one of the elite teams or the elite team in the sport this season, but. You know, Gonzaga spots, you know, let's say Portland, uh, 15 points on the road in February. That's not very difficult for them to come back. Gonzaga spots, you know, BYU in the in the in the conference tournament, 15 points uh, in, the, in the first half of that game. Not very tough for them to come back. I even think, you know, if Gonzaga were to spot, you know, I don't know, Creighton or, or uh, USC or Oklahoma, 15 points in those games, they're good enough that they can come back. Baylor proved they're too elite of a team. You know, they're a very, very good team. They were on level with Gonzaga all season long. You can't spot them, you know, 10, 15 points early and expect to make it a game. I thought that they would come back, you know, and make it at least interesting down the stretch, but they really never did. And I think that's a product of how that game started. You, You just can't give a team like Baylor 15 points, even if you are Gonzaga and expect to come back and win the game.
0: Yeah, I think the other big thing that was a big factor in the game is that Jalen Suggs getting the second foul about like three minutes into the game, and he had to sit for about eight, nine minutes. That's where Baylor really pulled away, and then they had to put Suggs back in early with the with the two fouls, and he gave his credit. He played the full half without fouling again, and they got it within 10, but there's just such a big hole on a team to make shots like Baylor does. That's too big a, a lead to spot you're right.
1: Yeah, exactly, and, and that's a, a big part of it too is, you know, it, Baylor's offense is just so efficient all season long, especially in this tournament. You just never felt like Gonzaga was going to put together, you know, the number of stops needed to, to overcome that. Like you mentioned, even a 10 point lead at the half, you know, getting three, four stops in a row in that game for uh, Gonzaga felt like a big task just because of how efficient uh, Baylor plays offensively. And I know Gonzaga is, is obviously was one of the uh, most efficient teams in the country on offense as well, but, you know, just stringing together stops consecutively against Baylor was so hard for them. Put themselves in that hole early, and it was just so hard to dig out of it.
0: Yeah, I also hate the narrative going around. Oh, Gonzaga wasn't elite. They didn't beat anybody. I'm like, A, you didn't watch the sport. You saw you saw who the, all the teams they played this year and beat all these teams that are very good. And B, it takes away from what Baylor did because Baylor played one of the most efficient national targets I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. Let's not let, you know, the one game kind of, you know, one game narrative kind of, or push that narrative that, uh, you know, it's Gonzaga they'll never be, you know, on, on par with the elite programs, you know, yada, yada, yada. Look, they play no one all season long. Gonzaga beat, you know, like 10 really solid teams this season. This was one of the more elite teams in college basketball history. They just got beat in the national final. And I think that, you know, if you play that game, I don't know, 20 times. I think 17, 18, 19 of them are close games down the stretch. They just got hit on a game where they played probably their worst game of the year. And Baylor played one of its best games of the year. It's unfortunate for Gonzaga, but yeah, let's not, you know, let this turn into a, you know, a referendum on Gonzaga saying that, you know, they're, they're not among the elite teams or it's the same old team that we've seen, you know, you know, with these undefeated runs and then, collapse in the tournament or these, you know, really strong regular seasons and then collapse in the tournament. Cause that's not what this was. This was a very, very talented team. I will say though, even if they had gone undefeated, I, I wouldn't have considered them among, you know, the greatest college basketball teams to ever play just because of the season that we were in, and the conference that they're in, you know, going undefeated in the West coast conference is not the same as the ACC or the SEC or the big 10. But I will say again, that doesn't take away from the incredible season that they had up to this point.
0: Yeah, one thing that made them vulnerable, we didn't realize this at the time, but we saw this as this national championship game play, especially when Suggs hit the bench, is that Mark Few plays a very, very tight rotation in terms of guys he gives big minutes to. And, like, once Suggs goes out, like, a lot of these bench guys, were not giving them a ton up uh, here. Like, Watson gives good defense. He's not trimming much on the offensive end. And Baylor's running 8, 9, 10 guys who get quality minutes in that game. That's a difference, and especially in a situation where Baylor got, like, basically a coaster-free ride to the title game. Gonzaga had to fight tooth and nail but the guys playing 40-44 minutes to get through UCLA.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, a great point as well. You know, and, and Gonzaga, honestly, you know, these these bench guys that they have probably didn't really have to play very big minutes all season long in the regular season, at least. You know, they, they may have not been, I don't know, conditioned to to, to play big minutes in a national final against uh, against Baylor, because, you know, while well, by the time the bench guys are entering in, the lead is 10, 15 points already. And, you know, and then obviously by, towards the end of the game. So, yeah, that's that's a big part of it. You know, depth wins in March, I think that and, and in April now uh, depth wins, you know, in, in the in the uh, tournament. Baylor had more depth in this game, and as you mentioned, Gonzaga had some foul trouble with some of its best players early. Uh, that'll impact the game as well. So, yeah, uh, you know, again, credit to Baylor for for the uh, incredible run that they had, and and you know, really blew out a lot of the teams that they faced this season.
0: Yeah, they did, and they all they talked about this a little bit in the in the broadcast. Or Jim Nance talked about how this is the biggest rebound history of college basketball. They're not going to why. I want to give Baylor Scott Drew more credit because I mean, when he comes in that program, they were on. Rock bottom of rock bottom of all sports. I mean, they had a player literally murdered by one of his teammates. The ex-coach, Dave Bliss, basically blamed the dead player for drug scandals going on there, academic scandals. Everything was a mess in that program. And they had years they couldn't play non-conference games. They had a long postseason ban. Probably the most undesirable job in the country at that point. Scott Drew comes in 18 years later. They're national champions. That's an incredible turnaround.
1: Yeah. And it, it was kind of this, you know, slow build into the final uh, cu- culmination of the title, you know, because Baylor has been, I would say, on the national scene uh, for the better part of the decade now. I want to say that they made the Elite Eight in like 2010 or 2009. So they've they've been around for a while now um, with Scott Drew. And that's, you know, that's, you know, a, a good point and a, and a good message for all these, you know, power conference programs that are down, you know, and I, you know, I don't need to name a few, but there's a bunch that have been, you know, down for, for years and years and years. If you hire the right guy, sure. It's going to take some time. It's going to take, you know, maybe a decade or, or, you know, 10, 15 years, but after a while, you can build into a winner. If you have the right guy, maybe that's you know, a sign to like stick with your guys in college basketball. You know, we don't need to be turning over coaches every three, four years. If a guy doesn't get it done right away. I think a lot of these programs want that, you know, instant gratification. All right. You know, we won 10 games this year. If this guy doesn't get us to the NCAA tournament in two or three years, he's out and we'll bring the next guy in. You know, if you can see progress from year to year to year, you can build slowly into a champion as Baylor did this season. So, you know, it's a message, I think, to a lot of Power 5 programs Stick with your guys. If you think you have the right guy, stick with him. Uh, don't be recycling coaches every few years because because you can build into a winner. If it could happen at Baylor, a team that like you said eighteen years ago it was was deader than dead. Um, I, I think it can really happen anywhere. To be honest,
0: yeah. And like the thing is, like it was not you said it was not a fast build. It was like okay, first they became a respectable team in the Big Twelve, then they were a tournament regular. They started getting towards the top of the Big Twelve, and now they won. It took them a long time to do that. And I mean, there are programs like around the country that have been dead for a long time, like <coughs> to Paul <coughs> who just can't get <laughs> their acts together. And like, you know, give these coaches a chance here. Like, and like, you got to give these guys time to build programs because especially in age where you have a lot of one and done, you have the transfer portal. Like you're not going to be like an overnight success
1: Exactly. And I think a lot of these fan bases and these, you know, athletic directors want that they want that. Like I said, you know, if you, if you won 10 games in, in, in uh, year one, you know, you want to be in the tournament by two or th- you know, by the two or third year of this guy uh, being your head coach, that doesn't happen everywhere. You know, sometimes it, takes a few years to to build into like you said just you know a respectable program then into a tournament program then into a tournament regular then into a nationally relevant team it takes a while it's you know for for programs that are on the mat right now it's it's not going to happen overnight that you go like this from a 10 win you know irrelevant team to a you know a final four contender It, it just doesn't happen that way for a lot of programs you know if you're not a blue blood obviously. So, so it's, it's patience and Baylor had it and they got rewarded with it. Uh, 18 years later with Scott drew.
0: Yeah. I mean, think about it for a second here. Like not every, everybody's like sees a NATO state, Alabama or Chris Beard did Texas tech say, I want that. Like it doesn't work mm-hmm. like that for a lot of those guys. Like those no. are very unique circumstances.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are the, the outliers and not the, uh, the, the rule. Those are the exceptions to the rule, you know, and, and even those guys, you know, they've gotten their, their, you know, programs to top 10 programs are obviously Chris Beard left. But still, you know, it, it's gonna take time to be on that level, you know, consistently. You need the resources, you know, and, and it's just, patience is key here with, with a lot of these programs. Um, you know, my school's going through it right now at St. John's, you know, you know, be patient with these guys. If you're trending in the right direction and you feel like you're trending in the right direction, Stick with your guy and, and see where it takes you uh, instead of, you know, flipping coaches every four or five years, one recruiting cycle for one guy and then the next and the next and the next. You're not going to build a program. You're not going to build a culture that way.
0: Yeah. And St. John's is very guilty of that between like going from Steve Lavin to Chris Mullen now to Mike Anderson. Anderson seems to be going the right direction, but like they need to give him time. They can't just, you know, after five years and not any going where they say, oh, I'm to the next guy. We're, we're St. John's we're, we should be better than we are.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's going to, it takes time, you know, and you're not going to school like St. John's, you're not going to build from where they're at now to a final four contender in in two or three years. It just, it's not the eighties. It doesn't work that way. So it's going to take time uh, for all these programs, even, even DePaul, like you mentioned, you know, it it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight unless you, you know, land this five star, you know, four, five, uh, five star recruiting class. It's just, it's not going to happen.
0: No, and another example, too, Gonzaga. I mean, they had the Cinderella run in 99. Then it took a while. They were regular. There's has tournament regulars all the time. And then everybody's asking, you know, why, why can't Mark Few win the tournament? Like, why are they always out in the Sweet yep. 16 or losing early? And now they've been, like, making deep elite eight runs. Now they've been the Final Four twice, lost the championship game twice. Like, it takes a long time. And now they're getting in the mix for top recruits. They're getting number one overall recruits coming into the program potentially. It takes a while. So I think patience is something that has you have to learn if you're not one of these Dukes or Kentuckys where you can say, oh, I've got a... Land the next like five star number one recruit every year.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, patience. As we said, patience is not something that uh, is around a lot in in college. You know, sports as a whole, college football and college basketball. There's not a whole lot of patience there. So I don't know how many programs are actually going to listen to that message. But um, if you do, sometimes you get rewarded in it. And like we like you said, we saw two programs, Gonzaga and Baylor, who did get rewarded in going to the, the national final.
0: It's also the reason why I love college basketball a lot more than college football because college football, the way the system is set up now, you know three quarters of the playoff field before the season starts, and there's only four teams. So that's a problem, in my yeah. opinion. Whereas yeah. here, like 68 teams get in, you know, one team can get high, one team can have a big injury. Anything could happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. College football, I mean, you know, if you want to compare the, the final four in each sport, i think college football every year you kind of know it's going to be probably what alabama Ohio state maybe one other clemson and yeah. then maybe one other sec you could like you said you could pick three of the four schools you know at the start of this college basketball season sure you probably would have said gonzaga and maybe you would have said baylor but you know it, you know no one was saying ucla and i don't think anyone would have said houston either so every year you get this with college basketball you're you're not able to predict the final four in in november or december and a lot of people aren't able to predict the final four in march so that's why in my opinion it's, it's the Best tournament in uh, in the world.
0: Yeah, the, by far the best like playoff format I think that, that has been invented.
1: Definitely, I agree.
0: And let's get to a little off season nuggets here. We talked about North Carolina's head coaching search last week. They did stay in the family. They hired Hubert Davis. I think you know what I don't have a problem with it because Roy was there. Roy knows what Hubert Davis was doing. He said, "Hey, he can lead the program. I don't doubt it." It's one of those things where I wonder like how long the leash will he get because I want I know UCLA's UNC is loyal to the family, but if he does not get out hot here and they've had some issues with players entering the portal, they're losing Walker Kessler. They had a couple of guys go over the draft. Like you wonder at what point does UNC say, okay, Hubert had his shot. There's not many family candidates left right now. Like, do we go hire Jerry Stockhouse or Antoine Jason? If Hubert doesn't work out or we go- finally go outside the family and look for a big fish.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely, you know, a, a question to ask. And I think that, I don't think it was a bad hire, like you mentioned. You know, he, he's no, I, been on the I staff, like obviously. Yeah, he, he he's been there. He knows, you know, what the culture is. It's not like they're pulling him out, you know, from from nowhere or, or the NBA like Indiana did with Woodson and just kind of throwing him into the college team. He he knows that, sure. Um, but I, I do wonder, you know, how how much of an effort they really made to to look outside of the family, as we always say. Um, you know, they they what Roy left on the first, and I think they hired. Uh, Hubert on, I think the fits that's a four day coaching search. You know, I, I really do wonder how, how much looking they truly did, or if it was a strictly, you know, we're hiring a UNC guy. That's, that's my only real question there. And, and like you said, you know, how long is it going to take him to build North Carolina back into a national title contender, uh, which they were really, you know, throughout the entire run of, of Roy Williams. I do wonder what his, his leash is going to be like, if it's going to be something where he has, you know, like what we just mentioned, is he going to have four or five years to build them up to that national title level? Cause with UNC, obviously the, the, you know, timeline is a little bit different there, but I wonder how long he's going to have, you know, is, is a tournament appearance enough to, you know, you know, consistent tournament appearances enough, or are they going to want to see final fours and national championships, which is what North Carolina is known for. I'm curious over these, you know, first Three or four years, uh, you know, what type of, of of leash, as you said, he gets as a head coach, as a first time head coach, too. Yeah, because part
0: of this just feels like Matt Doherty vibes to me, where like if he ha- gets out slow, I would not be surprised if after four years they say, okay, we're gonna move on and go somewhere else.
1: Yeah, and, and we talked about last week. I mean, North Carolina is is a premier job in the sport. It's one of the, I think, you know, I think their AD said it, we think it's the best job in the sport. It definitely is one of the you know four or five best jobs in the uh, in all of college basketball. So you do wonder. If it doesn't, you know, if you don't see that progress after a few years, could they go to anyone? You mentioned a couple of candidates, you know, I don't know who's going to be out there in a couple of years from now, but it is a job that's a very attractive job that you can get uh, almost anyone to at least take the phone call and listen. So I'm curious what the leash is going to be like for Hubert.
0: Yeah, that's also a good point because they're in a spot where they know like, okay, we like Hubert, we'll give Hubert a chance. And we know if it doesn't work out, we're North Carolina. If we call you, you're picking up the phone. You're not going to hang up on us.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's like why I'm a little um, intrigued, I guess. I don't don't want to say critical, but it's interesting that that, that the head coaching search was so quick uh, that it didn't really, you know, have some time to play out. Obviously you have to move on quick with the way the college basketball is nowadays with, you know, players, you know, moving in and out, you know, the guys on the program want to know who their head coach is going to be. So they had to move quick. Sure. But you're North Carolina, you could have called anyone in the country. And like I said, they would have picked up the phone. Um, so it's interesting that, that it happened that quick and that it happened, you know, with, I guess some people would say an underwhelming hire considering some of the names that were maybe out there with Hubert Davis. So that's the one thing that, that, that interests me is that, you know, you, you probably could have had this, you know, long national coaching search. And I wonder just how much the current state of college basketball maybe affected, you know, where they went uh, with this coaching search, just because they wanted to turn around so quickly and get a new guy in there.
0: Yeah, I also think there's also a little bit of the Jawan Howard syndrome here, where it's like, oh, he's a successful alum, he yep. played in the NBA, he'll connect to young recruits that way. He made a way that Roy doesn't anymore. So I could see the logic there.
1: Yeah, and, and him being on the staff as well helps, you know, retain the guys who are already there. You know, it's not a totally new coaching staff coming in; it's the guy who they know uh, is, you know, just being promoted. So yeah, I, I really think a lot of it had to do with with the current state of college basketball and just trying to kind of keep as much as they could in place. You know, uh, uh, of recruits and of guys that are currently on the roster.
0: Yeah. And for the second week in a row, we had major breaking news on the coaching front
1: right before we recorded.
0: Sean Miller fired by Indiana. i uh, not by Indiana, by by Arizona. And <laughs> I mean, Archie Miller got fired by Indiana, but that's a whole. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the Millers are both out of coaching jobs right now. But Sean Miller, this is a case where I feel like he did win. Not winning enough, and considering the baggage he has the NCAA investigation hanging over their heads where they had the self-imposed postseason ban, this is a case where they're like, okay, Sean Miller isn't worth it anymore. We're going to move on and go somewhere else.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Bill Self has those issues at Kansas. Will Wade has those issues at LSU. Uh, those schools have determined that they will take on the baggage as long as they keep winning. I think Arizona was content to do that as well. Just, you know, deal with whatever comes along with, with Sean Miller and whatever, you know, under the table, sleazy things are are happening. They'll turn a blind eye to it and they'll, they'll keep winning. But as you mentioned, once that winning ends, or once that winning kind of isn't as frequent uh, you wonder if it's worth it. I guess that they determined after this season, it was not worth it. I I would hope that they start to clean things up now in that program. And, uh, you Know maybe show a little bit more integrity and, and don't you know turn a blind eye to when things like this go on, but yeah, I mean, and, and you do wonder now, guys like Will Wade and Bill Self, you know, if if Kansas, for example, you know, it doesn't have a great season next year, is that bode well for Bill Self, Will Wade as well, these guys who do have these you know, very publicly known violations going on or, you know, sleazy things going on. You wonder, you know, if those schools will see this and say, all right, maybe it's not worth it for us in, you know, one or two years if we're not seeing the the, the winning that we wanted to see.
0: Yeah, well, those are two completely different situations here. Well, wait. I think they will throw him overboard the second they don't need him anymore because Kansas, on the other hand, though, they gave – Bill Self this lifetime contract, and you look in the yeah. fine print; he can't get fired for cause. So, like, uh-huh. he's not getting fired unless like they decide they don't want him. Like, he, he, the NCA could put a show cause penalty on Bill Self; they would just wait it out. They would not like actually like fire him over this and the wait. They the way they would structured that contract.
1: Yeah, and about about Will Wade, yeah, exactly. I think once once you know Will Wade, I think is in a very similar situation to uh, to Sean Miller, where yeah, once that once that winning you know. Goes away or isn't as frequent, he's going to be thrown to the side and they'll find a new guy because LSU. I don't, you know, I don't think is is that incredibly tied to Will Wade. So, uh, but it's it's interesting and you know, in terms of, of Miller, uh, hopefully, you know, getting getting coaches like that out is is honestly good for the sport. You don't want to see guys like that who who are known to be um, you know doing kind of these sleazy you know underhanded things. So, it, it's definitely good for the for the sport to 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 get those guys out and hopefully get some guys in who maybe have some interest in following the rules.
0: And Arizona is a good job. So I'm very really curious to see where they go. But I think probably going to stay close to the program in terms of ties because considering the NCAA potential here, I think they're going to have a hard time getting outside candidates who are not as interested in the program here. I think I've heard Gonzaga assistants in the mix there. I wouldn't be surprised if Damon Stoudemire gets a call because he's done a decent job at Portland States. is in there. Yeah. Also, if I'm Josh Pastor died at Georgia Tech. Like, I'm getting the hell over there. I'm getting the hell out of Georgia Tech because I, I was on a thin leash before this year. So, like, I, think I would say, you know what? If I get this job, I'm running to, to Arizona.
1: Yeah, yeah, like you said, it's it's an attractive job for sure. Um, you know that they they do have the resources, and they are a program that, for the most part, is in the NCAA tournament mix. And you know, occasionally every few years, we'll be in you know a top ten type school. So you know, it's an it's an attractive job for sure. I don't think that they'll have too much you know difficulty finding uh, interested candidates. Like you mentioned, there's already a couple out there. So. We'll we'll see, but you know they they should be okay without without Miller, and I guess that they they realized that today that you know we we will we'll be okay with without this guy running the show.
0: Yeah, Arizona would would made the tournament this year if they were eligible. They were good enough that to do that.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely.
0: And it sort of sets up for the off season here. We we, we have to we wraps up here. This off season is gonna be just wild because you have the the transfer portal right now is about fifteen hundred like athletes in the portal, which is gonna be ridiculous addition to your normal like. Mm-hmm juco transfers your d2 guys coming up to d1 you have you had the potential of all these coaching carousels going on here you have the one-time transfer rule in play where i probably get passed because I have a situation now where you can transfer you don't need to get the waiver from the ncaa because oh my grandmother lives near campus i'm gonna be near her so i want to play in front of her you're not gonna have to do that if that wall passes Mm and it's just there's so much chaos going on here i haven't mentioned the seniors yet who could all I had the extra bonus year for eligibility because I know most of them are not going to take you but some key ones will.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, we haven't really even, we'd really just started the official off season, but for a lot of programs, you know, it started in the last couple of weeks. And like you mentioned, there's already, you know, 2000 kids in the portal as a, along with all these seniors that have to make a decision. if they want to come back along with the NBA draft. I mean, it's the landscape in college basketball is, is so totally different and we may never see any, we will never see an off season like this again, for sure. But just in general, I don't think that we're going to see, you know, the, the four-year player, the three-year player, even the two-year player. I think those years are, are kind of done uh, in, uh, in college basketball, you know, the, the days of, of, of recruiting a guy and having him stay at your program for four years. they're, they're pretty much out the window now with, with all these options that these guys have going forward. Um, and it kind of turns college basketball into a sport, you know, we had the one and done era, which I think for all intents and purposes is, is kind of fading now, um, you know, where the blue bloods were recruiting these five star kids playing college for a year and then go pro uh, we're kind of seeing that now with, with all college basketball, where it's just, I'm going to recruit a kid. I'm going to have them for a year and then we'll see what happens after that. I think that we're all kind of going in that, uh, in that, in that, you know, line of direction now. So very interesting to see this, this off season. It's, It's going to be the crazy. It's already been absolutely wild, and it's going to be uh, even more crazy as as we progress through April and May and have, like I said, these NBA draft decisions, more transfers, and and recruits coming in.
0: Yeah, I think the crazy thing here is just like you know, especially like a lot of these kids. It's 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 a lot of movement between the player who's at the high major who doesn't hasn't gotten the meds that he wants. Says you know I'm not going to stick it out and earn my meds. I'm going to go somewhere else. I have a clear path to playing time. Or you have the kids who are from the or from the low majors and mid-majors who are just dialing that level. I want to play high major to try and improve my draft stock and get my chance to at least boost my chance to play overseas and play against better competition. So, like, that was going to get accelerated this offseason because if you have the super seniors who can come back because the NCAA granted them the extra year for COVID, I mean, they don't count against the scholarship list they the state, their current program, but if they transfer, you have to count on the scholarship
1: list. So that's also an interesting wrinkle. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, and that'll hopefully only be for this year. But yeah, that's, that's a whole nother issue to, not issue, but something to, 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 to count on as well. And you mentioned about, you know, the, the types of kids that are transferring. I think there's just a lot of kids out there that are saying, let me see what's out there. You know, I, I can always return back to my school just because I'm in the portal doesn't mean that I can't go back to my school unless they recruit to replace me. Um, Let me see what's out there. You know, I think that you're seeing a lot more of that. Like you mentioned, you're seeing a lot more of, of mid-major or low-major guys just saying, hey, let me, let me see if, you know, a a high major wants to take a shot at me. I think you're seeing a lot of high-major guys say, all right, let me enter the portal and, and maybe I can get a chance to play 30 minutes and start somewhere, you know, as opposed to the 15 minutes I'm playing here. So, you know, if, if there's one or two things that guys don't like at their school, it, it's worth it for them to just take a look and see. And and as we said, you don't have to sit out the year. So it, it, it's a totally different, different landscape for sure. And it's, it's interesting to, to, to see it play out so far over the last uh, couple of weeks. And it's, it's only going to get more crazy now over the next month or so.
0: Yeah. And I also think it's interesting to look at these way too early top 25s because those are always fun because that's even crazier now because a lot of players yeah. have made all the decisions, but like, One thing that's interesting here is tracking what happens to Gonzaga because obviously Jalen Suggs and Corey Kisper are going pro. I think for me, they are in the favorite to get the number one recruit in the class, Chet Holmgren, right now. He seems to be leaning that direction. He's not made his announcement yet, but if they get him or if Drew Timmy comes back, that's the other option here because he could go NBA, but I think he might be better off staying another year. I think they're still the number one team next year because look at their bench. They have all these recruits that are top guys just didn't play much, and have him in there. You have some recruits coming in, some good high profile transfers. They're going to be right there.
1: Yeah. I, I think if you, if you had to pick a team that uh, is going to be, you know, the number one going into next year at, as of right now, you know, seven months in advance, it's probably Gonzaga. But um, like you mentioned, I mean, those, those way too early top 25 lists, they're, they're always exactly what they say they are. They're, they're way too early, but, in a year like, like this or an off season like this, where you're having hundreds of guys, you know, switch schools every single day. uh, It's just so hard to even consider those Mm -hmm. right now, to be honest. And, uh, and kind of handicap who's going to be, you know, in what spot next season. So very interesting to see this off season, but, the, those those lists are always crazy, and I think this year especially, it's 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 almost not even worth worth discussing them. you know.
0: No, I think there are a couple of teams that do pop out to be interesting. Number one is UCLA, because if Johnny Juzang ends yeah. up staying in school, not going in the draft, and that's an unknown because he had a great term. He could have boosted his stop. I think he's probably better off going back for one more year. They bring back basically everyone. They have a bunch of good recruits coming in. let say like Chris Smith actually decides to take the the extra year after he hurt, him, hurt his uh, foot during the regular season and had trouble working out for the scouts. I think... You know what? Why not? Like, I think this team could be a Final Fourteen again if everybody comes back.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and Zhang is is the big one for sure. Uh, I I'm not sure if he's even he's announced it yet, but I would assume he's going to test the the waters for sure and uh, see what's out there in the NBA, and then and then you know see if uh, make his decision from there. But like you mentioned, I think he would be he would be very very well served coming back for a year and seeing where it takes him on draft boards next year. Uh, For him in terms of, you know, accomplishing things, he's already gone to the final four. So I wonder if that maybe takes out some of his motivation to return back to school in in that regard. But yeah, in in terms of improving his stock, uh, definitely can't hurt to come back for a year and then see where you're at. um, You know, you know, in 2022, but It's so hard to get into the mind of these of these kids, Um, you know, with all the people that they have, you know, making decisions with them. You just you're not really so sure really anyone uh, in terms of what they're going to do, you know, in terms of going pro transferring, staying with their current school. It's it's so hard to to, to try to figure out, you know, where each individual guy is going to go.
0: I think, yeah, I think also otherwise also, I want to track of the blue bloods because obviously I obviously think Duke's gonna be much better off than they were with the normal off season. I mean, they're gonna loot. I, I think Matthew Hurst is probably going pro because he makes the most sense for him to do it after that year. I don't know how much more can accomplish staying in school, but like they have a good recruiting class come in. They could get another big guy in Patrick Baldwin, one of the top uncommitted recruits on the board, is leaning towards Duke right now. I mean, I think the Blue Devils will be in the at least the top fifteen next year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they, they gotta, they gotta improve next year. I mean, all, all the blue bloods, you know, Duke uh, Carolina, even with their new coach uh, Kentucky, especially th- those schools, they gotta have a bounce back year. You know, you, I can't see, you know, these blue bloods being, you know, bl- you know, non-tournament teams uh, for a second year in a row. I just, that's unheard of to me. So yeah, Duke I think is on a lot of people's uh, radar as like a top 10, top 15 team. I, I Again, I just, I, I, I can't see a world where Duke is not, in the national title picture, really two straight years, or at least, you know, in the top 25, uh, two straight years. I just, I I can't see that happening. So if, if I had to, to, to pick, I would say Duke for sure is going to be a top 10, top 15 team, at least going into the season. And then you see where, where it goes from there.
0: And I think there's also one massive wild card in the mix is that Michigan state has a commitment from Monty Bates for 2022. And he's, he's hinted he might reclassify and Monty Bates is probably the best pro prospect in the next two years, because He's run favorable comparisons, Kevin Durant, and if he play, if he reclassifies and plays in Michigan State, it's still a big if because there are a lot of people who are convinced he's not going to go to college and will just take the G League route yeah. and just get the money right away. But if he does, they're a top five team with him on the floor.
1: Yeah, definitely. I remember when he committed; it. The whole thing was like, is he even going to play college basketball? You know, that, that's cool for Michigan State, but is he even going to play? Yeah, if he does, that would be obviously the the best case scenario for Michigan State is him not only playing but reclassifying to be uh, eligible next season. So. Yeah, that's that's a huge question mark. Just, you know, one of, of many for uh, for all college basketball. But, yeah, if he's on the court for them, they're instantly a top team, a national title contender for sure. Just because, like you mentioned, I mean, he's he's really one of the, the better prospects, I think, that we've seen come out of high school in, in a long time. So, uh, you know, I think he's already kind of the, the number one pick for his draft here. So, yeah, he's definitely a game changer for them if he does decide to play to play for them, first of all, and second of all, to uh to reclassify to this season.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key with them because, like, if you remember what Zion was like a couple years ago for Duke, you look at those Amani highlights every night for Michigan State if he plays.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 you know you know what Zion did for Duke, uh, number one team in the country. They obviously fell short in the tournament, but certainly a title contender. You know, whoever you put around uh, Bates is gonna is certainly gonna you know elevate themselves at Michigan State for sure. So, very interesting to see he'll have the decision to make, and and I'm sure that. We're all going to kind of wait and see what he does, as, as well as, you know, thousands of other players uh, in the portal right now, in, you know, in recruiting right now. It's, 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 like I said, it's just an, it's an off season that we really haven't ever seen before.
0: Yeah. And we'll leave it here. I think it was a fun ride, Troy. Thanks for taking all the time to go through Marge Magazine. Before I let you go, follow social media, keep on some of the stuff you're up to on, on the Seeing Right podcast.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Troy uh, Moriello, M A U R I E L L O. If you're a St. John's fan, I do the seeing red podcast that covers St. John's basketball um, in the off season. We usually do podcasts a little bit less, but with this off season, there's been <laughs> really news every single day. So I'm doing one every single week, pretty much. Uh, so definitely check that out. If you're a St. John's fan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Have you been also following the craziest for the NCAA Supreme Court case last
1: year? Because know that, that was wild. It was going on. Uh, yeah. A little bit on and off. Yeah. Some, some of that um, for sure. But yeah, I mean, NCAA in court is always a fun combination.
0: Yeah, I can take a deeper dive into that with our legal guy Phil it right after this. All right, we are back here visiting the sports legal corner here on the podcast. It's not always we pop in here, but we did have a couple of interesting things discussed this week with our legal analyst, Phil Fryer. Phil, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. I'm happy to be on here talking to you about legal issues that are
2: not related to coronavirus also.
0: Yes, this is actually what we originally designed the segment for, stuff like this.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, I think, the first time we've done this in well over a year because of all the coronavirus issues. So uh, I'm excited to get back to normal, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling we'll be talking you down the line for MLB CBA stuff and figure out what's going on with that, but right now, we're going to talk about two things that have happened the last week that are at interest to the sports audience here. Number one, we're start with the NCAA in the Supreme Court, and they had a rough time there last week. Can you explain to me, the audience, what was the NCAA trying to argue in the Supreme Court?
2: Yeah, so uh, let me this is going to be a little bit of a drawn-out explanation, but let me start from The very, very beginning of the lawsuit. So uh, the lawsuit challenges the NCAA's ability to restrict uh, payment and other compensation to student-athletes. It argues that it's an antitrust violation, uh, antitrust law. you Listeners may know it better as monopolies and things like that, but essentially you can't form anti-competitive agreements with your – Competitors to price people Out of uh, a market So the lawsuit alleges that the NCAA Is that, it's an anti-competitive Cartel In in essence uh, So the lawsuit got litigated, it went all the way The Trial court issued a decision That said, yeah The NCAA They can do that for uh, Non-education related benefits But they can't do it for education Related benefits uh, And it went up to the Intermediate Appellate Court. The Intermediate Appellate Court agreed and the NCAA asked the Supreme Court to review it and the Supreme Court said yes. And the fact that the Supreme Court said yes got people pretty interested. The Supreme Court only takes about 3% of its cases that it's asked to take. They have discretion on which ones to take and they don't take most of them. And the fact that they took the case was interesting because... Education-related benefits is a very, very narrow exception to that rule, right? Uh, it, It includes things like scholarships, for instance. The NCAA can't cap the value of the scholarship. But the Supreme Court took the case anyway. So it made people think, well, maybe they want to do more than just this narrow little exception that the other court carved out. And you went up to the Supreme Court and that's exactly what it sounded like happened that, uh, what's called the oral argument, essentially the uh, argument like you see on TV where the lawyers argue in court rather than the written submissions that they file prior to it. Uh, and that argument happened. And based on the questions that the NCAA lawyers were getting from the Supreme Court panel, it sounds like the Supreme Court is prepared to really make a drastic change to college sports. Uh, the NCAA tried to argue that, look, uh, you know, this is important to protect the concept of amateurism. And, and they actually argued that they are supporting competition by restricting these athlete payments because it creates two levels of for consumers to watch. You can watch professional sports for the people who are paid, or you can watch amateur sports. And their argument was that uh, that it's important for us to do that. And, you know, if, if we can't control the compensation that these guys make, they become professionals. Uh, but the Supreme Court panel was just not having it. They were very hard on them. And it was bipartisan. The liberal judges, conservative judges were... You know, all basically questioning and saying, well, isn't this a cartel? Isn't that what you're doing? You're, you're restricting how much money these guys can make for no real reason. Other, I mean, Justice Thomas, who is notorious for not talking, even said, well, does the NCAA have any concern about the college coaches, how much money they make? Because it's well known that, for instance, Nick Saban is the highest paid person in the entire Alabama public system. Nobody makes anywhere near as much money as Nick Fabian, including the governor. So uh, th- that was a question. And essentially the NCAA sounds like, it sounds like they're in trouble.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was tweeting with you that day when the, texted you that day when the Supreme Court made the arguments. I mean, you had Clarence Thomas talking about how much the coaches make in comparison to the athletes. Justice Kavanaugh basically ripped the model and said, this sounds like a monopoly. And I think the only, from the sounds it sound... Then, and knowing that court, they are probably the most conservative justices there, along with Justice Alito, and they were all basically hammering the NCAA. One interesting thing that came out of the arguments to me was that Justice Breyer basically said he's one of the three liberal judges on the panel. He basically said, "Like, hey, like, this could go down a slippery slope if we open this, and we could be have a time of unintended consequences." What do you think about what he had to say about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, he's worried about what what I touched on at the beginning. Uh, if 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 you open this, is there even such a thing as college athletics anymore? Uh, And it it seems like there's not. Uh, And that was one of the arguments that the NCAA made was, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, We, we cannot operate. If you make us pay the student athletes in some, in some respects, it's going to hand, it's going to cost us millions and millions and millions of dollars, if not billions. The point where we can't have the vast majority of college sports, which, as you know, Mike, are not profitable. Uh, they, it's, I don't think it's a secret, but in case any of the listeners don't know, you know, Iona's not making a lot of money on the field hockey team. No. So I'm not sure if field hockey exists if you've got to pay the basketball player, and uh, and that was the argument that they made. But from a legal perspective. I'm just not sure if it matters because the law is what it is. And it's clear that these basketball and football players are worth, especially at these powerhouse schools, are worth money in a, in a competitive market. And, uh, and their ability to earn it is restricted by the NCAA. So uh, I think there's an argument there. And that's that's what the plaintiffs are arguing. And, you know, it's kind of funny because this all stems back to something that your listeners probably know really well, which is uh, NCAA football, the video game. Uh, That's that's really what kicked off this whole line of litigation. If you remember, they used to make the video game NCAA football, and although they didn't name the players by name, you know, number 15 on Florida was a left-handed quarterback who had speed and was built like a tight end. And everybody knew that, that, well, that was Tim Tebow. So what ended up happening was there was a lawsuit about that that said, hey, uh, when they're making this football game, they're using my likeness and my image. It was uh, not Tim Tebow. It was actually a college basketball player who filed the case, but same difference. Yeah, no, uh, Bannon right. And uh, essentially what EA and the NCAA had to do was say, well, we're just going to stop making the game. Uh, had they just reached a deal, then they probably could have avoided this avalanche of litigation that they've hit. But now they're at at a crossroads where, if the Supreme Court goes the wrong way, the concept of college sports is, is going to look very, very different than it does right now.
0: Yeah, I think there's it, there's also two different aspects around here. Obviously, number one is this, which sort of opens the whole like Pandora's box of like they get paid salaries for like how much their time they're putting in here, which we saw a lot of the justice alluding to, as opposed to what's going on right now at some of the state and federal levels, there's this NIL legislation, which is name, like image and likeness. So like, what's the big difference between the two aspects of the law here they're trying to settle here?
2: So it's kind of like what, what you said It's it's as simple as you said it. So one, uh, one approach is, yeah, you're going to get paid. Uh, How many hours, a week does a football player on the Ohio state football team devote to football based activities. And that would include practice, weight training, conditioning, the game, all, all the things that go into a typical football week. And then he's going to get paid for his time. That, that's one way to do it. Uh, and, and, and to say that that time is not time that's being spent for education. Right. So, yeah, we're giving you a scholarship to do your classes and that's all well and good. But in return, you're expected to put in who knows how many hours a week for football purposes. So one way is, well, we're going to pay you, but we're going to pay you for the time you put in for football. So if, if that makes sense. The other way to do it is what you alluded to earlier from the state level. And a lot of states are starting to do this name image likeness. And that's I can go out there and I can profit off my name, my image and my likeness. So if that means that Nike wants to give me a nice big sponsorship contract, I can accept that without being punished by the NCAA. If uh, if EA Sports wants to create a college football game and put me in it, then I get I get a cut of the profit. That that kind of thing. Yeah, so I mean- it's it's two Different. They're not mutually exclusive, by the way. You can pay. You professional athletes get both. They get paid for the time they spend on their professional sport, and they get paid their endorsement deals and video and Madden and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, that makes some sense. I think also for a small arm scale model, people understand perspective. Something I I know Geo Baker from Rutgers, the point guard, some with somebody who's been very vocal on Twitter saying starting the hashtag not NCAA property, and he's talking about how they're like. You know, if you're a music student, you can go sell an album, make money. If you are a computer scientist, you can develop code and sell the code. But if you are Geo Baker and you want to start Geo Baker's basketball camp in his hometown, he can't do it because he's not allowed by the NCAA.
2: Yep, exactly right. Uh, you know, the the best example of this might be Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, I think everybody knows the story that Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was at college. Well, uh, if if he was in a a collegiate athlete, he would have been suspended by the NCAA for doing that. If he made a dime, a single dime on the website. Uh, And, and and yeah, why? It's a good point. It's a good question. And a lot of people in the Supreme court were asking it too. Why, why does the NCAA have the power to restrict students, student athletes from earning money that uh, people outside of the university are willing to pay them, whether it be Nike, or Gatorade, or the local sports camp that you're going to run on uh, on the weekends during the summer. Well, why does the NCAA have the ability to restrict me from doing that? Yeah, and it's a hard one for the the NCAA lawyers. Didn't really have a good answer for it, other than well, the the sport would collapse. It it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be an amateur sport anymore. It would be a professional sport. That, that was really the only answer. And I'm not sure that's going to fly legally.
0: Yeah. I think there's definitely gonna be a lot of reckoning coming for the NCAA in the next like e- couple of years. Cause seeing that we have a lot of reckoning in terms of t- title nine, trying to promote equity between the men and the women's sports. This is not the la- this, I feel like the NCAA is going down a very bad path of what, for what their traditional business model is.
2: That, yes. And that's a good point too, that you brought up title nine, uh, because it's, this, this is going to, pro- it's going to, Pose huge Title IX problems for the NCAA because uh, men's the, the only really profitable college sports that anybody runs is a basketball program and a football program. I don't I don't believe you make any money on any other college sport. That's correct. So, and and that's for men, not women. So it becomes very very difficult. But from a Title IX perspective, well, now what are we going to do? Are we going to cut the baseball team? Are we going to cut the volleyball team? What are we going to cut to make to allow us to operate at a profit on men's basketball and men's football? And you need to have some sort of reciprocal female sport. So you can have women's basketball, then you got to have some sort of a women's sport to reciprocate football. It becomes a legal mess. And the NCAA, I think, is... I alluded to this earlier. I just think that they've approached this poorly. I think they should have tried to settle this dispute years ago, uh, reach some sort of a compromise that would allow them to continue to operate. But they took this line-of-the-sand approach, and it it may backfire now.
0: Yeah, it certainly has. We'll put a pin in that one because that one's going to be something that's going on for a while. The other big news here was majorly—
2: Yeah, and— Before we move on, I just wanted to clarify just so that everybody knows the Supreme Court will decide this case by the end of June. That's when the term ends. So an opinion will be issued by the Supreme Court before the end of June. So it's coming up.
0: Yeah, so that's something we'll put a pin in. We can definitely check back in on that once the ruling is made, break down what it means for the NCAA. But the other big news of the week, Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta. And when we get to Colorado – I think this is pretty clear. This is entirely due to the, to the controversial Georgia law SB two hundred two.
2: Yeah, uh, they, they Major League Baseball said as much. Uh, that, that, that's why they did it. Um, so, so we don't have to speculate. That's what they said.
0: It is what they said, and I mean, I like we've seen some of the legal like analysts break down SB two hundred two. as a controversial law that's been basically called Jim Crow on steroids by President Biden and by a lot of voting activists and Republicans basically, oh, voter security, election security. Like, what is the most like controversial aspects of this law in your opinion?
2: well, the the law has a lot of controversial aspects. I think the most controversial aspect is the context in which it was passed. And, and what I mean by that is if you if you look at the individual provisions of the law, And you look at them individually, you'll say, well, that's not so bad. They cut down the days of early voting. Okay. You need an ID to do absentee voting. But if you don't have an ID, you can attest to it and still get away with it. Okay. And and things of that sort. So individually, it looks like, well, that's not entirely unreasonable. But when you look at these in the totality, and then you look at the circumstances on which it was passed, it becomes clear, at least to me, that there's some ulterior motives going on here. It looks fishy because this law was passed fresh off what everybody knows was a Democratic sweep in, in Georgia and, and a huge upset. Nobody expected Biden to win Georgia. He did. And then both Senate seats flipped Democrat as well. So, uh, so that, that was a big surprise. Georgia's historically, at least over the past 50 years or so, been a very red state. So it was a surprise to see that. And as everybody knows, uh, the response from the Trump campaign and a lot in the Republican Party was, well, fraud. There was fraud. There was widespread fraud. And uh, if, if you followed uh, a lot of the Georgia Republican election officials, including the Secretary of State, said, no, there wasn't any fraud. This is fair election. Like this is, you know, this is these are the results. And in that context, to come in here and pass a law that is designed to remedy fraud that nobody's been able to find a shred of evidence about seems to suggest that this law isn't really about fraud. It's about trying to secure enough votes on the margin, and what I mean by that is prevents enough Democratic-leaning histori- or people who you assume are going to be Democratic-leaning voters based on demographics from being able to vote for some procedural loophole reason. If you can do that on the margins in a state that's that close, you can turn it back red. And it, and it seems like that was really what was driving the push here, and that's what created the just huge pushback from the president and corporations, including Major League Baseball.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, if you look deeper into the law, I mean, you see things like you can't give anybody in line water or food because then it's because a the crime. There are laws about not drop about reducing number of ballot boxes, like one per county, which that makes a bigger deal in some of these counties that lean more blue and people use a lot of absentee voting during COVID last year. And you look at all that stuff and. On, like you said, on its surface, it seems like, okay, these things seem reasonable. Then you look at all the little, like, loopholes that are thrown in here, like, oh, this provision and this provision and so on and so forth. And it just looks and reads like an attempt of, like, we're going to try and make sure that as many people in that African-American group do not vote because that's why we lost the election. Especially given the context of when this thing was passed. It was passed coming off
2: an election where they lost. The, they being the Republicans and there was a narrative of fraud but no evidence to prove said fraud so it's well if there's no evidence of fraud why do we need to change our voting laws to address fraud doesn't really doesn't really add up and that's why a lot of people have read between the lines here and said I, I know what this is this is your attempt to silence like you said the African American vote or at least reduce it Enough that we can uh, get back our our state uh, and make it red again. And, and the other aspect of the law that's a little concerning is that certain counties in the state are subject to additional state review. From what I understand, so and those counties are the big historically Democratic counties like uh, Fulton County, where Atlanta is located, and. The places where, you know, go back to election night, those were the ones that, you or election week, I should say, those were the ones where new batch of votes came in, Biden narrows his lead. New batch of votes came in, Biden narrows the lead even more. So it it seems like it's clearly designed to go after Democratic votes under the guise of fraud protection.
0: Yeah, it definitely makes some sense. And I also want to note here also that the response from the Braves was very clearly pointed in terms of like they took no shots at the law. They basically blamed the league and said, hey, we had nothing to do with this. You're depriving our economy of this. What would you think of how the Braves responded to the move?
2: So the Braves are in a tough spot, right? And the reason that uh, the, the, what what we can do, and we being citizens and, cor- and corporations, what they can do is when laws get passed like this, if people don't like it, Major League Baseball moving that All-Star game out is, is essentially a, a punishment to the Georgia representatives of, hey, uh, we don't like what you're doing, and now we're going to punish the people of your state. The businesses in your state are going to lose all the revenue that comes in with the Major League Baseball All-Star game. And the, so the Braves are in a tough spot, right? Because what are they going to do? Are they going to come out and say, yeah, you know why We agree with this decision. Because if they do that, they really jeopardize and harm their own fan base. So I I don't know what they could do other than what they did, which is to kind of say, look, we don't support it. Uh, We're we're sorry for our fans. And and because ultimately that is what happens. And and it's a little upsetting in that respect, right? Because the people who are going to suffer from this decision are not the guys in the Georgia legislature who passed this law. It's the guy who owns the bar down the street from uh, from the hotel where people were going to be staying for the All Star Game, that does, and the guy who had tickets to the Home Run Derby and was going to bring his eight year old son, those are the people who really suffer.
0: Yeah, it's certainly fair. I also do want to give credit to the league here. This is definitely this is the right decision to make because I get that this is much different environment when they had 10 years ago, because 2011 they were facing heat because of controversial immigration laws in Arizona. When the all-star game was at chase field, they opted to leave the game there. But given the way the climate has evolved in this, in this time with all the movement, especially in terms of the get out the vote initiative, like MLB would have had a huge PR problem. They left the game there because you would have the potential of stars like Mookie Betts saying, I'm not going. You could have Dave Roberts and the manager of the Dodgers say, I'm not going. You could have had a lot of PR nightmares and, I think it was good for the league to actually back up its pron say, "Hey, like we support the getting the vote out and not just playing it lip service by leaving the game there."
2: No, I think the I think MLB made the right decision too, uh, and I don't want to be construed as saying they didn't. Uh, MLB doesn't have the power to say that we're going to overturn the Georgia election law, uh, so they did what they could do, which is, you want to pass a law like that? That's fine. We're going to take our All Star game. We're going to move it elsewhere. Uh, and that's that's the really the only thing they could do. So, and I agree that it was the right decision. I think they avoid a PR nightmare. I think they actually come out ahead. And I also think it was a good decision from a collective bargaining perspective. You alluded to that earlier. That's as everybody knows, the CBA is coming up. That's so going to be a heated negotiation. And now at least you don't have the players saying, "Hey." You know, you wouldn't even give us the all-star game when we told you we were upset about it. At least you can get past that issue and have some showing of good faith that you guys can agree on certain things.
0: Yeah, I do think we've seen a lot of times like these controversial laws of sports tends to be the precursor to try and bring about change. Remember back in 1993, the Super Bowl got pulled out of Arizona because the voters there refused to recognize Martin Luther King Day as a national holiday. Back in 2017, the NCAA moved all the championships out of North Carolina. The NBA pulled the all-star game out of Charlotte. after a controversial law. that was screaming against the L G B T population. I mean, this sort of feels like a natural extension of that. And I think there's a lot of pressure on like the next big thing would be like the SEC championship It's always been in Atlanta. I think the SEC, which recently as last, last year may finally made its pressure, in Mississippi to change the Confederate flag, and get it off the state buildings. Now I think they might, they're gonna have a lot of heat on that. This law is not changed to get that game out of Atlanta.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, the, like you said, this is, this works. Uh, North Carolina, you mentioned that. That law got overturned a couple of years later. That's no longer the law in North Carolina. It, it related to transgender individuals and what bathrooms they had to use. Well, that law was repealed. It doesn't exist anymore. And that's in part because of the backlash they faced from sports, including the NCAA and the NBA. And, uh, yeah, these are these are meaningful things. They're huge revenue grabs for cities, and if you move the game out of there, it it, it hurts the state of Georgia. So uh, we'll see the out the how this plays out. I know that there's been a, a rallying cry on the from some conservative voices in America to boycott Major League Baseball, boycott Coca Cola, boycott anybody who there's a problem with this Georgia law, um, and we'll see. I mean, there's obviously. You know, a large chunk of the country uh, will be sympathetic to that position. And we'll see if people will boycott Major League Baseball over it. I I saw what was kind of ironic was what happened in Texas on opening day. Um, As we talked about, they had this full capacity, no uh, mask, 2019-looking baseball game. And they invited the governor to throw out the first pitch, and he said no. Uh, because of the All Star Game situation, which is actually kind of ironic, because the only reason that you had the whole massless huge gathering is because of the government, because he allowed it. So it's a it's it's a little little ironic, but that that's that's where we are, and uh, I think that Major League Baseball has the power to be a voice of uh, of change for for things, and uh, I'm glad to see them step up uh, and and the last thing i'll say on it is i know a lot of listeners are probably saying well you know i don't want politics in my sports. i just want to watch a game and i and i get it i'm sympathetic to that i don't think anybody wants politics in sports but at some level don't you just have to admit that it's there and it's always going to be there it's not going away
0: Oh, yeah. It's it's always been there in some share of forms. Sometimes it's, not just loud. it's not just louder than other times. I do think there are two other things to keep track here with this aspect of this situation. here. Number one is, like, as we've seen, like, the, the whole lie about voter fraud. I mean, there's more laws flowing around like this in state legislators in the country in response to the Trump, Trump campaign's voter fraud lie. So the, the fun the, that number one thing is track here is, like, if more of these get passed, and the MLB was smartly picked Colorado, which probably had some of the mo- the easiest voter access laws in the nation to sort of make the point here to Atlanta and, and the state of Georgia. If more get passed, you have to wonder, like, how many leaders start having to pull out of other places if they're extreme as this law?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and let's think, take a step back and say, well, why are all these bills pending? And they're pending for a really simple reason. Uh, you called it the voter fraud lie and, and I agree with that Characterization but if you look at Opinion polling There are a large large percentage Of Republicans in America Who don't think it's a lie They believe it They, they truly believe that Donald Trump Would have won the election but for this widespread fraud So if you're a Republican State legislator uh, You want to be able to tell Your constituents hey I did something about it. I proposed Senate bill 205 and that bill was going to get rid of the fraud. There's going to be no more fraud in our state. And and those bills are going to get pushed there. They may pass in other parts of the country. And it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, sports react to it. Are they going to move everything to states that, don't go along with that or I don't know. It's it's interesting. Georgia is the first to do it. It's the most high profile one because of, because of what happened with the election and the president and the phone calls to the secretary of state asking him to change the numbers and things like that. So uh, former president, I should say. So yeah, uh, we, we will see how this shapes up, but I, I think these, more of these laws are going to go into, into effect, but we'll see not now. now what I'll say now is that, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, but what I'll say is, if you're a legislator in another state considering one of these bills and you see the backlash that happened in Georgia, maybe you reconsider
0: it. Yeah, something got to be cons- something, some calculus in the equation here. I also think the other thing I want to touch on before you go is uh, Greg Abbott in Texas, the governor. Obviously, he pulled out of throwing out the opening pitch in law. He also made this big claim that. Major League Baseball is no longer welcome to host its big events there. Remember last year they did the neutral site bubble in Texas for the playoffs. He basically said, "Hey, baseball is is not is non-grat outside of our Astros and Rangers games." So, do you think this drives any legs? No. Uh,
2: Greg Greg Abbott cannot prevent Major League Baseball from hosting an event in the state of Texas. He has no power to do that. Uh, that's that's just political grandstanding. Uh, virtue signaling. That's that's all that is. He he has no power to do that. Governor Abbott should uh in my opinion just keep his mouth shut. Um and and you know what, Governor, clearly the people of your state want to watch baseball because almost forty thousand of them pack themselves in to watch a, a bad Texas Rangers team on opening day. So uh so some just seems to me like the boycott is not in
0: full effect. Yeah. And I'm going to get on the soapbox a second with the boycott. It just seems so ridiculous because, and it's somebody who has like voted on the right in the past. I mean, the amount of things that the right wants you to boycott right now, whether it's major league baseball, the NFL, the NBA, Coca-Cola, Home Depot, so like Delta, so on, and so forth. It means like, at what point, like, is there anything left for you to do if you're on the right? Because it sounds like everything's against you.
2: Uh, it, it's you. You sent me a tweet from, uh, and I don't remember who tweeted it, but uh, it was a pretty good argument. Um, you know, for for a, and I'm trying not to get too political here, but for a party that markets itself as, you know, the, the we're the patriotic party, we love America. Well, what do you like about America? Because it seems like you hate all of our traditions, our pastimes, our corporation so what what exactly
0: do you like about america i'm, I'm a little confused i am too because i mean like it's basically like don't watch movies don't watch sports don't buy like some of these brands like i'm just confused i don't know what i'm supposed to be liking here
2: uh, look uh, i think uh and again it's it's a little ironic because 20 years ago it would have been the the people on the left who were saying well look america has no culture our culture is Sports and movies and Coca Cola, but now it's right. is saying, "Well, don't watch sports, don't watch movies, and don't drink Coca Cola." So, uh, so it's it's kind of funny how it's flipped on its head that now the left is is embracing the sports and the movies and the Coca Cola when 20 years ago that was not the case. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I'm not sure what these what they're looking for. Uh, it's 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 really concerning to me, at least, uh, that, that we're going down that path. It's, it's ironic. it's, It's really ironic when you consider the whole cancel culture movement and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't believe in cancel culture. Well, sounds like you do believe in cancel culture because you're trying to cancel all these corporations for doing stuff that you don't agree with, which, Hey, you're right. But, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure where they're going with this one, but I, I would, I think that what Major League Baseball is trying to do is, and and Coca-Cola and Delta and so on and so forth, they're trying to show these these states, look, uh, we have a voice, and if you want to make these decisions, that's fine, but understand the consequences, the, the people of your state.
0: Yeah, indeed. I'm going to stop that there. I don't think we be going any further down the rabbit hole, but Phil, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, thanks, Mike. It, like I said, it was uh, it was nice to talk about some non coronavirus related legal issues
0: in sports. Hundred percent.
2: So uh, I'll look forward to talking to you, uh, talking to you again soon, um, and hopefully we can talk some baseball next time.
0: All right, that will do with this week's show. I want to thank my guest Troy Moriel for hopping on to wrap up the end of the college basketball season. Fun chat there. I just want to thank Phil Fred, our legal guy, for coming on to discuss what happened with the NCAA in the Supreme Court and MLB moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta into Colorado. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my reaction to the San Donald trade for the Jets, and spoiler alert, I think it's a win-win for both sides. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon. All the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast catcher, you can find all our episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star as well. They help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's mphilips i p s three three one. Check out my YouTube page as well. Mike Phillips on YouTube for individual conversations from the podcast. My chats with Troy and Phil will both be up on the YouTube channel shortly. And that's all for this week. Coming up next week, we have a run-up to the draft building here. We're going to spend that couple weeks... Talking about the Jets, talking about the Giants' off seasons, previewing the drafts. It's going to be NFL draft month here on the podcast now that March Madness is over. But don't you to stay tuned for that. Until then, I hope you have a better week, the Gonzaga fans. Oh,